0: So welcome to our podcast Land and People uh, where we interview people with ancestral and professional ties to the land. I'm Melissa
1: Kamara. I'm a conservationist and artist here on Hawaii Island. And I am Clay Traurnicht, I'm an extension specialist. I work on ecosystems and fire at the Department of Natural Resources and Environmental Management, University of Hawaii at Manoa.
0: We should thank our sponsor, by the way. Let's do that right now, the University of Hawaii,
1: <laughs> right? Um, this is really part of extension programs. So we use extension funding um, and, and the really, again, because the purpose of this podcast is to kind of share stories about people's relationships, how they got into the work that they do and what really connects them to to the place. And so I think that some of the times we get technical and talk about the nitty gritty science. Other times it's much more focused on the relationships. We try to actually provide the space for even the people that do that technical work to kind of talk about why they do it more more than anything else, I, I would say.
0: Right, right. And so we have been talking quite a bit about climate and water with our past few guests. And today we have Dr. Chris Schuler. Um, he is a hydrologist uh, with the University of Hawaii at Manoa, and he lives in Haiku, Maui, and has been just right there from the get-go, August 8th, the start of catastrophic fires on Maui, sheltering a colleague and doing water testing and learning right then and there. Yeah. So we're going to actually hear quite a bit about that a little bit later, but we actually
1: do get into sort of his work in Samoa and other things, right, Clay? The impetus was thinking about the contaminants and and what happens after the fire, but really Mm -hmm. he talks kind of more about how he got into groundwater and nutrient dynamics and and potential movements of chemicals. And so he's, he's very humble. (laughs) You know, he'll be the first to admit his. you know, the chemistry is not his strong suit, but water Movement and, and and hydrology certainly is, and it's it's so relevant to uh, really to everything on in Hawaii, especially with in the way that we're managing land, justifying how we manage land, and and things like that. How we take care of this place, and you know, the the theme is is like water and people. Once again, so
0: <laughs> yeah, here we are talking about water and people. Um, yeah, we do get into fr- fresh water, its availability, um, you know, its connection between the surface and the ground. Mm-hmm. It's really cool. And this is not me and Clay's background at all. So we're like learning as we're... <laughs>
1: yeah, <laughs> Some, pardon the stupid questions.
0: <laughs> as we're interviewing, we're like actually, you know, learning yeah. the basics. So it was it yeah. was really fun for him to describe to us just, I'm sure for him, rudimentary terms, but for us, like... It's just so cool to hear to hear how it all works. Uh, he's a, he's a
1: he's a great communicator. Um, it was it was a pleasure.
0: He's fabulous. Yes. So with that, we'll introduce our next guest,
1: Dr. Chris schuler researcher at the Water Resources Research Center at the University of Hawaii Manoa.
2: Good to see you again too, Clay. Good to um, see you <laughs> yeah,'ve How you like, been a handful of times, but um um I've been busy. But yeah. I mean, I, you know, I can't, I'm sure you've been super busy too. Um, yeah. So I can't imagine how much you've probably been doing nothing but interviews the last couple of months. Huh?
1: Well, that at least has been, that's, that's way winded down. I mean, it's, it's out of the news cycle at this point. So mm-hmm. people who've been involved with firework, like where, what do we do now? Like what, what's yeah. the action? This is bigger than anything we've ever really tried to think about before.
2: Lots of, lots of things we have to talk about with weather stations and, you know, other projects and whatnot, but we'll, we'll leave yeah. that for a different time when we're not sure. doing interviews here. But uh, yeah, just.
0: So how do you two know each other? Oh, it's got to be through Tom.
2: So I, I started as a grad student at UH in 2013. Okay. So just being at like, you know, I think the last time we saw each other was at one of those stakeholder meetings, yes. but you know, kind of those conferences, you know, I'm, I'm more focused on the water side of things but certainly um, more of a, a jack of-all trades than an expert at anything. Um, <laughs> so I've kind of been bouncing around with different different water issues you know from from the modeling and stream flow and all that side of things to doing stuff with the ledge about cesspools.
0: Mm, okay, okay.
2: Kind of becoming a more of an analytical just <laughs> certainly <laughs> not an expert, but <laughs> a user of analytical chemistry with this uh, this uh, VOC volatile inorganic compound testing in um, drinking water after the fires. So that's that's been a new sort of field that I'm, I'm quickly trying to catch up on.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it seems to me that that is new, but generally speaking, I mean, and this has just been some of my super light reading when it happened, or it was the campfire rather in Paradise, California, and that this whole kind of new realm of contamination, the potential for contamination that people were kind of like learning about in the aftermath of that. Just that the fact the scale of, of these urban conflagrations like this that are actually obviously tied to wildland fire, but that it, it's definitely um it's it's a mess. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, we want
0: to hear all about that perspective, um, but before we get jump into all of that, we want to know a little bit about you. So I'm going to turn it over to Clay to ask the first question. If- she makes
1: me ask the first question always. <laughs> um, always start with just asking our guests like where you grew up and how you connected to the work that you do and the places that you've you've lived and and you know experiences from your early in life that kind of maybe led you to where you are now?
2: I'm originally from Flagstaff, Arizona. So that's where I was born. Uh, but my, my family's got roots in Hawaii going back a ways. My mom's family, um, she was born on Oahu. And most of my family, their aunts and uncles, they're all kind of townies. So mm-hmm. like they, they grew up like Mo'ili'ili. If you know where uh, Alan Wong's restaurant was, I think it closed down. Oh uh, yeah. a couple of years, but that was like their family property which was okay. like a couple blocks away from so i moved to oahu uh in 2013 for grad school mm. and we lived we lived just like right down the street from there and, and my grandma was actually in a little spot on fern street so
1: oh that's a cool zone
2: yeah v- very much like asian honolulu townie like <laughs> so my, my family like They hardly ever get to the beach. Like, I'm the only one who surfs, you know. I'm the (laughs) the, the boy from Arizona, right? So, um, but yeah, so that's kind of my kind of Hawaii family connections. And we do have some family on Maui and whatnot, other islands too. You know, in terms of doing the work that I do as a hydrologist, you know, I got my master's degree in geology. And, you know, I'd always been kind of into doing things outdoors. Like on the mainland, I did a lot of skiing and, you know, rock climbing and all that stuff. And, you know, honestly, I probably, you know, when I was, when I was applying for grad school, I think I remember like, like the moment when I decided to go to grad school and I was working at this summer camp, which, uh, which is actually where I met my wife. But so I was was working there as a maintenance guy and I was like scraping moss off of a roof, like one of the, the like camp cabins. (laughs) And I was just like. I need to do something. Like, I think I'm smarter. I think I'm smart (laughs) enough to like do something a little bit, you know, more high level than this. I should apply to grad school. Um, and so, you know, that got me just kind of thinking about various, various stuff. And that was in North Carolina at the time I was kayaking a lot. And so, you know, I think it was honestly just like Kayaking, maybe I should apply to hydrology programs. You know, water's cool. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, very, you know.
0: Can I ask a question, Chris? Did you come here to surf? Because <laughs> <laughs> we've been asking people how they got here, and Tom is the only honest one who basically came here for that.
2: Yeah, I, I did not. So I didn't come here to surf. Okay. But I, I'm a full-on adult learner. I just started surfing when I was when I came here for grad school. Oh, and cool. My wife, I think, was that was a major determinant of our decision to go. So I applied to a number of schools, you know, we had I had an offer in Arizona and Oregon and then Hawaii. My wife grew up in North Carolina on Wrightsville Beach. And so she and her family had kind of always surfed. And so when we are like, which of these options should we choose? <laughs> Hawaii was a, was a strong forerunner. So <laughs> it's, it certainly had some determinant
0: in our decision making.
1: That's, n- that's awesome. There's nothing wrong with that. No,
0: yeah. no.
2: <laughs> yeah. So she and I, Came out to to Hawaii, and I got my degree in in earth sciences and geology, mm-hmm. and uh, kind of just kept going. I did a lot of work in American Samoa for my master's and PhD.
0: Yeah,
2: and you know, I think that that did help me expand my area of, of interest, just because American Samoa is it's a very small place. There's not really many people doing things there.
1: There's right. a lot of
2: things to do, and I'll, you know, just kind of a lot of low hanging fruit. So I was able to do. A, a lot of different projects and get involved with, you know, different areas of focus, you know, from the groundwater modeling thing, which I started with, to, you know, w- working on like geothermal kind of stuff. Oh, you know, working with people doing things like that. And then, you know, into more coastal kinds of things, SGD, submarine groundwater discharge oh. uh, work and whatnot. So I've, that certainly helped me.
1: And Samoa, like, how did you connect? To some of the more, I mean, it sounds like you connected to some more of the applied needs there. How did you find your way towards, rather than, you know, obviously coming in and be like, oh, I'm going to do this and that, like, how did you link up? Who are the people and sort of projects that, like, led you to kind of figuring out what really were the needs, like how you could apply what you were learning to what they, the help that they needed there?
2: Honestly, you know, I mean, I I suppose some graduate students, like, have an idea of what they want to do and they go out and do it, but I just kind of let luck be a lady, you know, and we were really lucky. American Samoa, my advisor didn't have a lot of plans and sort of things mapped out in advance. So we ended up, you know, knowing we wanted to do something with groundwater. There's only one water utility there. So all of the wells are pretty much controlled by the American Samoa Power Authority. We kind of reached out to them and said, you know, can we sample the groundwater? And they were totally cool, helped us out sent out operators to go sample with us. You know, we just kind of hung out with those guys for two weeks and sampled groundwater. And during that time, you know, got connected to those very, as you said, applied parts of, you know, water distribution. And um, I mean, I think part of it too is like the American Sonoma Power Authority, they not only, you know, pump and distribute the water, but they're also tasked for caring for it because it's a small place, right? And they're the main stakeholder that uses it. And they're the only water utility on the island. So they kind of have a big purview And, you know, just getting in with the water utility, like at that level really set the kind of perspective of like, you know, the work that I'm doing needs to be useful to the people that I'm working with.
1: Totally. Yeah, that's Um, cool.
0: Yeah. And what were you um, specifically looking at over there in Samoa? The
2: first thing I did was sample the groundwater for all kinds of different chemical species, isotopes, nutrients, things like that, to really just understand what the water quality issues were there and, you know, see if we could we could do some science because the, the proposal I was working off of the mandate was like, do some water stuff in American Samoa. <laughs>
0: that's cool. They <laughs> like listed
2: this, like huge range of stuff that was more than a master's project. You know, it's right. like, oh, model yeah, this and do all the contaminant stuff and whatnot. So I ended up making a model out of it, groundwater model, looking at nutrient transport because, you know, that's what we saw a lot of variability with was essentially nitrogen. So, so that was what came out of that, that master's. But I also started a lot of of other projects to finish up with my PhD. I'm
1: wondering if maybe you can like take a step above that for, for all of us the listeners alike, but to say, just to describe a little bit about like the possible pathways that you're kind of trying to track. So we're talking about groundwater and then where those may be ending up that you will, that people will be concerned about.
2: You know, I mean, I think that's the difficulty, right. That we as scientists have when we're like, okay, I'm going to make a groundwater model. And like, you're so focused on, you're so focused on the method. I think a lot of scientists like really fall prey to being method specialists, you know, like, cause like to a hammer, right? Everything looks like a nail. And so (laughs) you're going out there and like, okay, I'm going to make a groundwater model. Cool. Like now what, right? Like what's the relevance? Um, Right this model and like, why is it useful to people? So, you know, I think that's certainly one thing that I think all of us struggle with and, you know, working in the applied space does really help you to think about is what I'm doing useful to somebody and how is it useful? So with that particular project, you know, making a groundwater model of nutrient transport. Okay. So there was, you know, we found some nitrogen in the water. It wasn't above of like EPA action limits, so the water We're utility good. was like, no worries, you know, it does it doesn't matter to them, right? We're good, you know, it does matter to the coastal ecology when you've got nutrients discharging out into pristine coral ecosystems, and then right. you know, algae blooms and covers the coral, and you know, there's a host of other impacts from that. So again, that's kind of what led me towards doing more submarine groundwater discharge work because that seemed to be the the relevant space for that particular. Finding, mm-hmm. I think it's always important that we're we're keeping an eye out for how our work's important and how it ties into the rest of solving the problems that we as a society face.
1: And like the back of my brain. My I worked with uh, American Community College, or sorry, American Samoa Community mm-hmm. College, which is actually one of the reasons that why I was told I have to connect with Chris mm-hmm. years back. I keep thinking about the the surface water issues there, right? So one of the things they were working on were these piggeries, right? Where everyone's washing down these, uh, you know, cement beds where they're running their pigs and all that going out into the, into the stream. And so are you able to, I guess the question is, this is sort of distinguish the contribution from groundwater and surface water in that work, or were you pretty much just figuring out this is what's kind of percolating down into the aquifer directly and coming out that way? Yeah, funny you mentioned piggeries. Um <laughs> <laughs> but,
2: Funny, just because piggeries was a a big uh, contributor of nutrients in our models. Yeah, okay. And we used nitrogen isotopes to try to pull out the different contributions between piggeries and cesspools and things like that. And yeah, the surface water component was, I didn't model any surface water in that particular work, um, but I have done some subsequent work looking at at surface waters. And I think, you know, overall, you know, that must have been uh, half a decade ago or something, right? Because they've actually done a really good job in American Samoa of cleaning out piggeries. Yeah. And the American Samoa EPA has put a, put a lot of effort and resources into trying to make them a little more sustainable and eco-friendly just because they really do, you know, value the reefs. And it was made pretty clear that, you know, there are big nutrient contributions to the streams and, and to groundwater. We did find that those contributions. You did. Yeah. Okay.
0: I mean, that leads me to exactly where I wanted to go, which was talk, just for our lay listeners, like describing the connection um, between surface and groundwater, because of course, like policy wise, they're treated differently. Um, maybe you could just like in the broadest sense, kind of tell our folks how they're connected or not connected. And, um, I know it's probably an incredibly complicated question to ask, but I'm asking. She doesn't yeah.
1: want to talk about piggeries anymore. <laughs> <She's
0: trying to laughs> yeah, I do, but I, how does that relate to streams and the aquifer, et cetera, pollution? I think keep us talking about piggeries.
2: sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah i mean the, you know the short answer to that is like yes they're definitely connected mm-hmm. um and so you know bringing it back here to hawaii like the reason i said it was funny that you mentioned pickeries is because i actually we, we just moved into our place in haiku a couple of years ago and the reason that we well, we got it you know we moved here in 2021 and the market was nuts and it was just oh, demoralizing man. right to put offers uh, on places uh, and get outfitted. wow but we we ended up being a backup offer on this place And the first buyer, who was like all cash offer, movie producer from Hollywood, backed out when he came and visited and saw the piggery Ah. that was next door. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, they was like super loud. They were feeding them. And there's like, there's like 100 to 200 pigs next door to me in in Haiku here in Hawaii. Um, And, you know, they were loud and smelly and stuff. And it's like, they're not too bad. We don't smell them too much. But this piggery and, you know, I mean, maybe I shouldn't blow them out of the water, but they... They do not use the best practices either. So it's like not just an issue limited to Samoa. And so yeah. the, the streams in Haiku, you know, I've been doing some work here as well. So I have a graduate student funded to examine water isotopes and do sampling and just kind of generally think about the hydrology in, in Haiku. Because this is actually a pretty critical location in Maui in terms of water development. because sure. It's the closest place to the dry areas that's wet, right? right? So mm-hmm. it's, you know, kind of a bullseye for water development. And, you know, I mean, there is a lot of water here, which is a good thing. But, you know, one of the questions really is how connected are the streams to the groundwater here? Mm-hmm. The pig stuff leaching off into the streams and where's it go and whatnot. We've found some interesting things with our our isotope studies and, you know, looking at the geology. And I, I think it's different in different places, but, you know, in general, the stream water in Hawaii streams, when you see clear water in the streams, that is groundwater. That's base flow, mm. right? Because, you know, it's filtered through the ground and yeah. Um, it's coming out in the stream. When you see turbid water, water sediment, that's the runoff from, mm-hmm. from the rain. And so even if it's clear where you are, you know, it might be raining up the hill and you might have that turbid water. You know, you can see that in Manoa stream. You can see right. that in any of our Hawaiian streams. The interesting thing in Maui and Haiku in particular, we've got a couple factors. So one of which is that, you know, we found with our study uh, recently that the streams here, like I have a stream in my backyard and it's, it's very, very likely from, you know, what we found with isotope. disconnected from the basal aquifer so you know the big question is if they pump wells here in haiku is it going to dry up the streams that people swim in and rely on and whatnot Mm -hmm. and we think no Mm -hmm. because there's some volcanic layers on top that are less permeable and we think those streams arise from aquifers in those layers um what that means too so there's that which kind of makes the streams more intermittent. And then there's also the fact that they're being dewatered. Right. And so the historical ditch system is pulling water out of So there's a lot of streams that don't have water. Right. And so you really see this interaction like so clearly here where you, you know, you can be walking up a stream, you start at the coast and there's water in the stream because that's touching the basal aquifer down there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you go up and it dries out because, you know, all the water from above soaks in and then you go up farther and then you see this, you know, clear base flow coming out because there's an area where the stream bed is touching that aquifer, be it, or like usually a perched aquifer here in Haiku. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you go up further and, you know, that dries out again. And then you go up further and you see that there's EMI diversion and it's taking okay. all the water out of the right. stream, and putting it into the ditch. So it's, it's very dynamic. But yeah, certainly in Hawaii, surface water and groundwater are, are very connected through streams. And, you know, and then we're also seeing from the Supreme Court. Uh, court case on West Maui that like, you know, the groundwater and the ocean water are also right. clearly connected enough to, you know, mean that you discharge into the groundwater and you're you're breaking the Clean Water Act by discharging to coastal water. So yeah, that's all connected here.
1: Is it a case that our situation where it's like that, the, the, the geology is so particular to each given area that it is, you would have to kind of to understand that connectivity, is it where you'd almost have to study them case by case, stream by stream? Can you start to look at whether it's sort of the ge- geologic history of a place and whatever? I mean, again, this is like way out of my wheelhouse. There's <laughs> like mapping these features. Um, but I know that there's been some criticism, for example, um with how the aquifers kind of get mapped by surface features and then might not really relate where we might not be capturing these kinds of relationships. So kind of how nitty gritty do you have to get to really figure these kinds of things out?
2: Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. And I think overall, you know, as with everything in science, it kind of comes down to what you're trying to answer and what resolution you're looking at. Where, like, you know, especially as a modeler, you change the like cell size resolution of what you're looking at and it like totally changes everything and you know changes how the model behaves and changes what kind of your concept is of the processes that you're trying to measure so i think there's a lot of generalizations that can be made and we you know i I think it kind of falls into two spaces you sort of have like this real generalized space and a lot of The early work by Stearns and McDonald kind of works in this generalized space of like, we just kind of envision the aquifer as a basal lens Mm -hmm. and we know that there's more heterogeneity, but that's the main processes that matter when you're trying to extract water. So let's model those or conceptually think about them, you know, as that kind of generalized big picture space. Right. And then there's a the nitty gritty space where when you really start to envision like w- what is an aquifer, you know, you mentioned different aquifers and whatnot. When it comes down to it, we have an island, right? And it's a bunch of rock and there's all kinds of different things inside of the island. There's dikes and there's, right. there's individual lava flows are at the scale of one to six meters, you know, and they're like rivers of lava. And we've all seen that on coming down Big Island. And then you've got cinder cones that pop up and then they get buried by lava flows. So you've got so much heterogeneity. You can understand this stuff on like a small scale, you know, when you're like at the coast and you see a coastal spring coming out and you see that there's, you know, it's kind of coming out an area where there's like a patch of cinders or something. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. That's that's like an old cinder cone the spring is coming from the cinder cone. You know, and you have that very, very small scale perspective. You can kind of understand it from there. But then I think the hard part is in the middle to go anywhere in between that like sort of generalized, you know, as groundwater modelers, we call it just kind of homogeneous media, right? So you can you can say like all these all the flows and cinder cones and dikes are kind of heterogeneous, but just when you model it, you use you actually use a formula, Darcy's law that Assumes that the material is homogeneous.
1: And That's hmm. because
2: you zoom out far enough that those individual cinder cones and lava flows just turn into grains of sand. Right. You know? right. 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 But you can also model it individually as a cinder cone and a lava flow if you're right. scale small. So being in that middle space, I think, is where it's hard. Right. You know, that's where trying to discretize different aquifers. They're all connected, it's all just one rock. Saturated.
1: Yeah,
0: totally. That's it, right? In some places, and there's
2: (laughs) yeah, there's different features in different places that may perched aquifers or whatnot. But yeah, it, it is a little bit of a trip to try to envision how how the groundwater works here
0: we were talking with Jonathan Scheuer and, you know, the complexities of like figuring out sustainable yield. We don't have to talk about that here necessarily. I was just going
1: to go there. I was like, oh, what do you think well, about sustainable <laughs> yield? <laughs> okay, sure. Why not? You know, my understanding is like reading his work and just thinking about yeah the critiques of what that means. But again, it's like coming out of a lot of the assumptions you're talking about, right? How granular do we need to be to make decis- in that decision space? How much can we pump out? And, and I think that he kind of would go to the more important part of that is not just how much can we take, but like how much do we need based on how we're using it, right? Like, where is it going? Um, which is kind of a, it's this another part of that question. We didn't like rhyme you for any of this, but like to what extent you delved into that space or what your, th- or what your thoughts, I mean, I would love to hear what you think about yeah. how we're determining um, sustainable yield. I'm glad you invoked Jonathan, sure. You know, I think
2: he actually, what was it? So I was in a meeting uh, like a county council meeting or something, and they asked him a question about, is there enough water on Maui? I'll try to <laughs> quote him, but you know, he, he basically said, you know, there's no water dispute that I've been in that has resulted from a fundamental lack of water, right? So I think that's like, right. it's not about the water when you talk about sustainable yield. It's about the people right. and the politic and who gets it and who doesn't get it? Yeah. And who's using it for what and who isn't using it for what? That's the complex part of it because it's really a huge question. Totally. And you know, as, as scientists scientist, you know, we, we can we can sort of model stuff. We can you know it's basically like the rainfall, you know, how much does it rain? Yeah. and how much of that evaporates off and then how much is kind of left and right. what will it do? You know, the, the haiku question is a good question. Like if we pump water out of the base aquifer, is it going to dry up the streams? If it did, that would change your calculation on sustainable yield.
1: Mm-hmm. If it
2: doesn't, you know, maybe that that changes how you look at it, right? Because right. there's so many people that care about the streams. There's also people here that have their own wells. Mm-hmm. So it's like if you pump out of big wells and that impacts their ability to get water from their wells, that's that impacts that sustainability of the yield. So I think... right. Yeah it's it's really like the the trade off of what consequences are you willing to accept. Yeah. I don't know if you guys know Scott Azuka. He's USGS hydrologist, one of the classic hydrology guys. I mean, he's Stearns and McDonald for our era kind of guy, you know. He's right. Done a lot of the really just solid forefront USGS work and that's his line. It's just like sustainable yield is it's all about what consequences you're willing to accept. And then mm.
1: Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm.
2: maybe the, the modelers can actually accurately model that so you can do a cost-benefit.
1: Right. Get into what, what gets done with it and how does that benefit us? I mean, those are the bigger questions and obviously highly politically charged, um, mm-hmm. especially...
2: With SeaWorm's calculation. So that calculation is basically based on rainfall and recharge, which is... right. That's a, you know, it's a great first pass. Yeah. yeah. Everybody likes to talk bad about the RAM model and how inaccurate it is. And it's like, yeah, it is. But again, you're, you're in that zoomed out, generalized space right. where it's like,
1: you know. The right. one lens, it's like the big lens.
0: Yeah. I mean, but, but it is based on historical rainfall, right? I mean, so that's what I recall Jonathan saying. And so it's not taking into account future drought. Is that correct? Am I correct in saying that? And what are your thoughts about that? And
2: I'm not exactly sure what recharge coverage they're looking at. With, mm-hmm. with that particular model.
0: Mm-hmm. Certainly
2: it could and should be updated for future rainfall. And, you know, USGS has done a lot of really good foundational work, um, ingesting climate models and, you know, trying to sort out uncertainties, mm-hmm. uh, right. you know, at least on Maui. And I think they're working on other islands too, to, you know, get some projections for future recharge. So mm-hmm. yes, certainly, you know, we, we would hope our policymakers are thinking about climate change when they make policies that impact the future, (laughs) you know, we're certainly producing projections as as well as we can as scientists, right? But hopefully
1: projections and just even current trends, right. That are, that are changing, which we've, that's been documented. Again, it's kind of another way of being granular, not maybe in space, but in time. And how do we really, really anticipate that? Um, But even all those projections become really interesting because maybe we've got good projections for rainfall, but land, use and land cover is another kind of animal altogether and you know there's not a lot out there to use to say well how are these ecosystems going to change or forest cover that might be affecting groundwater recharge but we're not really yeah that's a that's kind of an area to to be explored but it's also cool because it's an area that maybe we can influence as well so um how do you see uh our ability to change those potentially using managing vegetation. So I mean, you know, changing forest cover, like at reducing tree cover, for example, maybe along uh, riparian corridors. Like, do you and for any of your work that you've done, has, has any looked at that? Yeah, I think
2: this is this is really the the million dollar question for Hawaiian hydrology right now. I was speaking with James Chang, who's a he's a, a staffer in, in Senator Schatz's office. And he, you know, I mean, that's kind of where I was like, oh, this is a million dollar question. Maybe we can get a million dollars from Senator Shack. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. so the answer is um, because. Yeah, really, when people are putting a lot of money in his interest is because he supports restoration programs. He's he's really great with with a lot of these kinds of initiatives. But one of the benefits that is often sort of espoused about restoration is that it'll improve availability of water because it like it makes sense. Right. It makes sense that you. You have like a spongy native forest covered in ferns mm. and that seems like it should, you know, absorb more water than like a strawberry guava forest where, you know, the ground is just right packed underneath. And it's like conceptually we think that and it makes a lot of sense. But the really hard thing right now is that it's really hard to measure yeah. those kinds of processes on a landscape level, especially. Oh, interesting. So I know, you know, some USGS work has kind of started in on that and started to try to do that. In some Tom's group has yeah. done a little bit of work on it as well. But it, yeah, it's it's a really big question that we want to answer that we just currently don't really have the data for. And I think that's gonna be something we see in eco hydrology. Hawaiian eco hydrology is, you know, hopefully more progress on that question in the next 10 to 20 years because it's a really pertinent question and it's hard to address.
1: Yeah, I mean so that's like the groundwater question, which is the kind of big, I mean, this is really important, obviously, because it's driving literally like the general argument for the benefit of, of native forest restoration. And I always, I always push back not to say like, Hey, you know, that's not important or that we don't know enough to say anything about it. But I'm also always just like, you know, everybody that I know that does that work is doing it for, for the plants themselves, right? It's like for the sake of the ecosystem, not the sake of the water it changes. But I, again, we're looking to sort of frame this in this economic benefits and water is like central to that. Is there any, effect of like the vegetation along a stream so this was the question that got posed to me these are these guys um, on Kauai. they're like can we actually increase flow not from the capture water like up mauka but actually as it's flowing or you know do the kinds of vegetation you have along a stream potentially affect the flow like the amount like the i guess it's the groundwater level right that would be maintaining a perennial flow along that corridor
2: well i mean i would almost think that if you have you know uh, depending on the kinds of plants that are around the stream they can utilize that water and evaporate it, right yeah you know is the question do you get more water from plants along the stream or do you get less you get right? less i so, you know i
1: a part of me wants to say maybe it's less because if you have these big trees that are coming in and they're just you know the basically the water table yeah they're sucking the water again we started literature yeah, they're just drawing more water up and out and lowering uh, the the groundwater, the the, the water table. Anyway, I'm just curious if you. Uh, <laughs> i Am like yeah. asking so selfishly? <laughs> Those are all important questions, and I, you know, kind of zooming back out too. I think
2: that in you know, in general, we there's kind of these like. I don't want to call them necessarily myths, but there's there's sort of these like right. things used to be better idea, right? Like as humans, <laughs> yeah. we know as humans. I mean, it's pretty clear as humans we're like kind of messing up the ecosystem, right? In right. in more ways than <laughs> one. But it's hard to it's it's hard to rectify in a really quantitative sense. You know, those things you hear like when you talk with old timers that have been around, and they say it used to rain so much more, and right. it doesn't rain anymore. You know, somehow us cutting down the forest or something has made it so that we have created drought or, or whatnot. And there is this traditional knowledge. And I think that knowledge is valuable and should be utilized and respected. But at the same time, like, you know, memories are imperfect and, you know, data is really the the quantitative thing that you want to base these trend lines off of. I think there's a couple of those big ones that kind of circulate around and just sort of the general populace with Hawaii. And, you know, I think one of them is the, you know, if we restore native forests, we'll have more water. I like that idea. But at the same time, we got to test it and we got to be quantitative about it. We haven't quite done it yet. You know, and the other one is taking away the trees has made it rain less. I was just at this meeting in, in Alabama, actually, of all places, where the National Water Center is, this meeting of like 300 hydrologists. You know, we ended up in a conversation about that question of like, you know, people say, you know, if we plant more trees, it'll bring the rain. That argument is, one, it's really hard to test. <laughs> and right. then two, it's also a little hard to think how that's, you know, how that works. I think these are valuable things to figure out as scientists to figure out how to mm-hmm. make hypotheses that will get us to do experiments that will, you know, effectively test these these pieces of thought or traditional knowledge or whatever. Um, so yeah, I'd like to right. see that happening. Yeah.
1: The rain follows the forest versus the forest follows the rain, which mm-hmm. when you just think of, like, as a plant ecologist, you're like, yeah, it's probably the latter. But that to say that these large-scale changes can't affect climate. I mean, there's kind of there's research showing that, you know, like deforestation in the Congo, for example, has right. these large-scale really climatic effects, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah, I mean, certainly in the Amazon, right? Where exactly. Like, where we're surrounded by an ocean of moist air, like...
1: Uh,
2: I don't know. We need more research. <laughs>
1: yeah, like on an aside too, there some people have linked the uh, that Little Ice Age, right, in like the kind of early the fifteen hundreds, to massive reforestation, afforestation in North America after colonization wiped out most of the indigenous population, which restricted burning and allowed forest cover to increase and actually like lowered um, global temperatures. But anyway, big digression. Apologize for that. (laughs) Good thing. uh, This is really good at editing. (laughs) No,
0: I'm actually glad we talked about this because we didn't get to ask Tom the, you know, the rainfall of the forest thing, which I still remember from his microclimatology class and just piercing that, you know, um, idea and saying it really is only proven big system. So Mm. glad to have that conversation a little bit. What next, Clay? What
1: Maui. Yeah, I really want to talk about Maui. To frame it, Chris and I got like reconnected recently. There are these series of proposals that kind of explode after an event like this. So the National Science Foundation has this rapid program. It's really dedicated to allowing scientists and communities to sort of establish baselines and I forget what the phrase is, but basically capturing data that you have to respond quickly in the aftermath of something like this to, to sort of characterize. And so that was where we kind of got like thrown together. I mean, among other, I'm sure there was multiple threads flying around. Um, but one of them is about the, the groundwater questions and, and contamination. And, um, and so maybe if you just want to give a little bit of a, how you sort of suddenly were thrust into that and then maybe like what you've learned since as a scientist or like as researchers like those, suddenly you kind of get engaged in these real time problems. Well, I
2: mean, you mentioned groundwater. So actually on on the rapid grant that I just put together, we're not doing groundwater, we're doing drinking water. Right. There's uh, somebody who's in our sciences and water research department, and he, he'll be doing some measurements of beach water to look at groundwater contamination. So I'm a little bit connected with that project. But yeah, you know, I'll, I'll talk about the drinking water stuff that we're doing. This experience... Yeah, I mean, this is a crazy experience for all of us on this island. You know, this happened, everybody in the world was shocked, and folks here just... I think one of the biggest things that I kind of recognize as a strength, at least of our community, is everybody on this island just stood up to help however they could. Yeah. You know? You're
0: amazing. People
2: are going out to the shelters, helping with that. People are donating their spaces to people that that mm-hmm. needed space. People were, you know, chefs were making food and delivering meals. Kyle was like going out on his jet ski and <laughs> delivering bottles of water and stuff, you know, like. Everybody was just helping. And during that time, we actually had kind of a, a friend and an MCC student who evacuated from Kula to, to our house. And we were watching what, what all the neighbors were doing on social media and everything. And mm-hmm. the Department of Water Supply put out this notice that the drinking water, you know, shouldn't be drank, shouldn't be showered in, yeah. use it because it could be contaminated with volatile organic compounds, VOCs. And that really, you know, just kind of spurred us into saying, like, how can we help? Like, wh- what do we do to stand up in this situation? And you know, provide what we can. And as, you know, as a water resources research center, as an expert in water, you know, this drinking water issue is a huge issue. You know, this is what, you know, we decided to focus on. So our work with sampling for these contaminants in people's tap water, and then really also providing outreach and information, because there's a dearth of information during that time. You know, the water utility was so busy trying to do their job. They weren't doing the best job communicating, which, um, you know, made... People make conspiracy theories and yeah. say right. crazy things on social media, so it's like we needed a website to post information on. So we, we spun that up, with, you know, frequently asked questions and updates and things like that, to you know, and to share what the county was doing. And yeah, we kind of put this this whole program together out of need that we saw in the community. And then you know, after doing this for a couple of weeks and just working nonstop on just trying to get done what needed to get done, so that homeowners could you know at least have a little more sense of peace in you yeah. know mm-hmm. knowing how contaminated their water was or if it was contaminated because this was all put together as a precautionary measure then we kind of did put together a rapid grant to to, to remember that we're scientists and we you know we're not just doing stuff to do it but we're also do it so that we can we can inform the next municipality or the next mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. people that this happens to so it's like you know our drinking water testing that we're doing right now is for this community right now Right. The papers that we produce with the RAPID that's supporting this, you know, are going to be to try to help inform the next wildfire
0: situation. I mean, stepping back, when you say this community, where are we talking about, you know, that, that you were helping with testing or helping develop those protocols? And and maybe you can tell people because they don't know um, what happens, like actually physically happens, like the pipes melt, right?
2: Exactly. So on Maui, there were, there were three fires that day. There was the yeah. um, Kula fire. Obviously, the Lahaina fire, and there was one down mm-hmm. in PA, mm-hmm. and that that didn't affect any buildings, but it did affect some agriculture irrigation distribution systems. So we actually took some samples out of those. So the you know the the basic process is that as a wildfire goes through a developed community, the plumbing systems have a lot of plastic components, and as those plastic components heat up, they release volatile organic compounds or semi-volatile organic compounds. Basically, you know, burning plastic
0: right. stuff right.
2: that is. <laughs> Um, you know, unhealthy. And those, if the system depressurizes, which it did in Kula and Lahaina, that stuff can move around the system. Even worse, too, it can, these compounds will um, dissolve into the water. And then as that water moves through the system, it can actually sit in places that were not directly affected by heat. And those compounds mm-hmm. can absorb into plastic parts of the distribution system. So PVC pipes or you know even like rubber plastic gaskets or metal pipes, things like that.
0: Oh wow. And okay.
2: Then those chemicals can then come out of those plastic components. They can dissolve
0: back into the water and oh. you know continue
2: to contaminate people's tap water. So
0: can I ask a quick question about that? Because people's homes have plastic pipes. So we've all seen them around like in, in the homes. But is it true that county distribution pipes are galvanized or no? Are they some of them plastic also?
2: Yeah, I don't want to speak
0: fully for the county.
2: I, I did spend a little bit of time with the water department learning about the system. And we actually, you know, kind of when all this happened uh, at Water Resources, you know, we, we knew uh, a guy named Andy Welton from Purdue, who's right. uh, he's an expert on this. He's been working on it since 2017, you mentioned earlier, in, in the Tubbs yeah. fire. That's when they actually Literally, the science was you know created Developed, in 2017, right. like six years ago. So he's been working on it since then. So you know him being the expert, we, we just kind of pulled the trigger and brought him here. And he then also was able to you know we we met up with the mayor and the water department, and he was able to bring in some experts, you know, basically the water utility guys from uh, the Campfire in Paradise. And the Marshall Fire in Boulder, and they flew out. So we, you know, we sat in a oh, wow. in a room with Department of Water Supply for a while, and you know, they told us all the, all the specs on the system and what they've done and everything. So we, you know, we were able to get educated about that. I think you know a lot of their mains are cast iron mains, old mains, and they do have a lot of galvanized uh, service lines, but they do have some plastic service lines. Um, OK, but that's that's kind of the, the, what my memory serves. I'm sure, not totally sure. sure what they're all mm-hmm. constructed out of.
0: Yeah. So you were trying to figure out or come to an understanding about like where these potential chemicals, pollutants, where might they reside? How long are they going to be in these components? Are they how long are they going to be in the water?
2: Well, so far we've we've been testing homeowners tap water because that's you know, that's the that's what people need in order to, you know, Get yeah. some information about right. what they should do. Right. You know, should they drive to Wailuku and take a shower?
0: Yeah. Should they continue yeah.
2: to drink bottled water? You know, and those are all, you know, and should they bathe their children in this water, right? Like I've gotten a lot of emails, you know, like I have a one-year-old at home. What should I be doing with this water? Like, yeah. I've got two little kids at home, you know, got yeah. a two and a five-year-old and it's like, <laughs> it's, you know, very close to your heart, right? Like, these are,
1: you don't want to take chances. Yeah, 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 yeah. this is these like st- hard question. Ask and answer. Yes, yeah, so
2: we've been just trying to test people's tap water, and we're running those samples at our lab on Oahu for volatile organic compounds. And those are the main compounds that you're concerned with, with the... Uh, you know, wildfire in an urban area like this in the water system. Essentially, we're focused on collecting these samples, getting data back to homeowners. But then, you know, then we'll have this data. Um, with that, you know, that's where I think our scientific, you know, rapid project. We'll try to do some mapping and, you know, mm-hmm. maybe try to start getting at some of those questions you just answered. Okay. But yeah, you know, like I said, this this project really started out a community need more than. Scientific wow. um, yeah,
1: no, that's very cool. We're,
2: we're, we're playing a little catch up on the science. Um,
0: that's amazing to just like jump in there to help hit that knee. That's incredible. To
1: what extent? would you have known what to look for without the kind of baseline work that Andy Welton had done? And then the second question obviously is like, what have you guys found? So, far? I mean, if, if you can say, I don't really want to, you know, like sort of have any conclusive, but like, are you sort of, is it a concern still? I mean, at, at present,
2: you know, I mean, preface this with, I've, I've done a couple of interviews on this and you guys are interviewing me, but really like I'm, I'm a newbie at this. Right. This is, I I started learning about this, you know, when Andy started teaching me about it. So right. you know, standing on the shoulders of giants, I, I wouldn't have known, you know, any of this. Like, you know, I said before, I'm a groundwater modeler more than an analytical chemist. <laughs> you know, but the other the other giant too that we're whose shoulders we're standing on is our Red Hill task force team mm-hmm. at yeah. University of Hawaii. So this is this is kind of the second time that yeah you know our water resources team has gone through this right Mm -hmm. when the red hill incident which is fuel contamination from the the navy fuel tanks into their drinking water system Mm -hmm. for listeners that don't know about red hill that that happened in 2021 you know that that was a big deal right because petroleum was coming out of people's taps and they were drinking it and getting sick so that was yeah yeah a lot going on there a lot of parties that were involved and UH kind of shook out of that as, you know, really finding a place in being able to offer our expertise and, and help to the community, you know, more than necessarily like the Navy or something like that. So some of the folks that I work with, Don Viviani and Rura Cagall Viviani, um, And and others at uh and leeward community college stood up this community tap water sampling program and so when you know this contamination issue happened on maui we we really just tore a page out of their book and kind of used their sops and and just to use that as a model you know i don't think that i would have come up with this on my own to say like oh this is what we need to do this is how we
1: No, you had the protocols like just the idea that like yeah we
2: you know we can help by going in and sampling tap water. That would have seemed invasive. I don't know. But it's like, we, you know, our team, and it, and it really was uh, other members of our team, because I was on Maui at that time. So, because the folks on Oahu were really on the ground doing that. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that was really, uh, you know, a foundational component of what we're doing on Maui. So, I, I, you know, I want to give that a lot of credit. In regards to what we've found so far, I also want to give credit to the Maui Department of Water Supply, because when this happened... They, you know, they had crews on the ground the next day, shutting off parts of the water system, isolating it so, you know, the water wouldn't leak out, but also at the same time to, you know, keep contamination from moving around the system. They did a pretty good job, I think, of valving off the system. And the parts of the community where we are working are areas on this do not use notice, which Mm -hmm. mean that they're essentially on the same pipes as houses that burned. Like right. connected systems. Right. Um, but you know are currently valved off. Okay. And the areas that are affected that cannot be valved off or are clearly contaminated, they're they're shut down and the department's not delivering water to those right. it's like specific okay. properties in Kula and it's parts of Lahaina. So we have not been finding really very many pyrogenic contaminants at all. In a couple of samples, we found them in different areas where we've been a lot closer to active burning. But primarily, we're, we're finding that the water we're able to sample in the houses where people are using that water, not affected.
1: Well, that's cool.
2: Benzene and toluene and, and those pyrogenic contaminants. We are finding a lot of disinfection byproducts which is kind of opening another can of worms because
0: Interesting. Yeah. You know,
2: these things are typically in the water and they're present, but people didn't necessarily know about it. And so now that water quality is on everybody's mind, it's definitely opening up conversation in the community and worries and fears and interesting. So that's that's a secondary product, but it's not. Exactly, pyrogenic.
1: Add to the fire.
0: Okay, disinfectants. What are we talking about here?
2: Background information on that, excuse me. I, you know, I forget everybody's not a water scientist. Um, <laughs> so when, like, every, every water system in the country uses, like, chlorine or sometimes chloramine to uh, treat the water, so microbes, you know, for microbial contamination, er. right? so, so we don't get cholera, right? So it's right. one of the major uh, advances in human society is being able to treat our water, so we don't have waterborne illnesses. Right. So, when you put chlorine into water, it kills the microbes, but it also reacts with organic matter that's in the water and creates these other compounds, which are volatile organic compounds called disinfection byproducts. There's a group, the most common one is trihalomethanes, um, so chloroform. Is probably the most common one that people know about in that group. And there's just, yeah, there's kind of a group of, of compounds that gets created. Some of them are carcinogenic. You know, we know that they're not good to drink. But there's mm-hmm. kind of this public health calculation that it's like, you know, how many people would die of cholera if we didn't put chlorine in the water? Right. You know, what's the risk of cancer? Yeah. And so if we keep it below our, you know, EPA levels, yeah. it should be okay. And, right. and I'll note that the levels that we're finding are four the most cases, for most mm-hmm. cases, below the MCLs.
0: Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So
2: they're, they're not they're not considered to be a problem by the water department or the sure. EPA or the health department. But, you know, we are finding detectable concentrations of these things and people have different opinions on what's what's acceptable. Um, right. Drinking, drinking these kinds of compounds.
0: <laughs> wow, all of that's so interesting. So is your um, sampling getting fed into, like, the county's Website, assuming they have one, um, is that how the information flow is going? Then, then homeowners can look at the map and see, oh, I'm cleared. Okay, it's cool to start drinking the water. Or whatever is that how it works? Or no,
2: yeah, no, not at all. Yeah, we're 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 offering kind of third party sampling.
0: Oh, okay. Um, uh, and our, okay. our
2: Instrument that we have, we have we have a very sensitive instrument, but we're our I guess our lab is not EPA certified. I see. So the county can't actually use our results for regulatory testing.
0: Oh, okay. They do a
2: lot of their own sampling for regulatory mm. testing.
0: Mm-hmm. And they,
2: they've got all their results up on a map, and they're you know trying to be really transparent and get those out. I see. And so we actually, on our our website, post their results and have links to their map and not okay. just to try to get that information out. So kind of the other way around. The issue that we recognize and that we are trying to amend is kind of a community trust issue with mm-hmm. institutions and agencies like a lot of the people we talk to out there don't trust the county and you know like don't believe you know they're saying that the water's safe and then to the extent yeah. where they're you know creating conspiracy theories like yeah you know, yeah they're trying to do this to us and so that's one of the things we're really trying to break down is mm-hmm. you know have, have like an expert third-party opinion we don't work for the county mm-hmm. um you know we're not part of that we sample your water independently mm-hmm. and like we can say this is what the county's done. This looks good to us. Mm-hmm. And we think that this is trustworthy information. And so, you know, we'll share that information with you so that you can make your decisions. And, you know, hopefully that's helpful. Hopefully that, that helps, you know, all sides of the issue, right?
0: That's so interesting.
1: Yeah. No, what a crazy sort of role to, I mean, not stumble into because you, you know, you sort of obviously saw the needs. It was very intentional. But in that space of realizing what the consequences of, <laughs> people's exposure to these problems are, right? And then the mm-hmm. lack of trust. And I think it's a, I think it's a major concern, Um, you know, especially on the, you know, on the Lahaina side, where you're really struggling to provide aid and people are in really precarious situations um and and not, <laughs> not happy, understandably with what, what the response has been. I mean, so much, so much of this begins becomes, be, becomes this question of like, you know, wow, we're trying to argue for prevention always in the wildfire realm, but right. But then you stumble into these situations where you know, it starts to seem beyond um, beyond our capacity to fix, right, some of these problems.
0: What has been maybe the s- most surprising or unexpected takeaway from, from all the things that you just described? Everything from like sheltering colleagues to providing third-party, you know, independent testing and so forth.
2: I mean, the thing that's kind of struck me or, you know, made me think that like, you know, we at UH, have you know kind of a certain responsibility yeah you know i i think it's that i think it's how much we can do with mm-hmm. what we have yeah and how our role as you know researchers at the university is you know kind of state date employees right totally. like you know we, we can really help our communities mm-hmm. and that's something that we kind of forget i think sometimes when we're doing our you know ivory tower research and we're just doing our thing up there and it's like we're disconnected from our community yeah but yeah i think it's like that we can help our community and and we're we are part of the community yeah and we represent the community yeah and mm-hmm. that's you know i mean there's different groups in the university of course and we're working with different agencies and all of that and you know maybe we represent different parts of of our government and whatnot but for this particular project the way it could sort of shook out and the way that we, I guess, sort of engineered it, you know, just sort more organically, I suppose. But we're really focused on the community side of, of this because, yeah, the, you know, the county has a regulatory testing; they're already doing that. We don't need to do that for them. But there's this gap in, like, like I said, where you know people want information but don't necessarily believe in official information, and that's mm-hmm. you know, kind of a an aspect of this whole disaster that we can help with. That we can be unofficial you know unofficial experts yeah right. and you know as, as part of that too like we've tried to you know come at it from that side of things like the the folks that we've hired to take our samples like the first person that i hired to sample in kula is you know now a community college student and she lives in Kula in a house that's in the burn zone and right we can take samples word of mouth because like you know, it's her neighbors who, who we're sampling from and we've hired a couple people from Lahaina. So one of them in who lives in the in a Hawaiian homesteads community there and one of them that grew up in Lahaina. So that really gives us our place I think to be members of the community and advocates for the community and also experts at the same time.
0: Yeah. And
1: yeah. just being able to be responsive, right? So that the value of this the Capacity that someone like you can bring in this situation, right? Like, you know, both being on Maui, which is a huge advantage in this situation, but also, yeah. you know, that that argument for, and I mean, this is a little bit of a plug, um, but for the kind of the specialist knowledge, but where maybe you know, many of us at the university aren't necessarily teaching, right? And so, like, a lot of times, the value of the university kind of hinges on that. Well, like, how many students are you bringing through? But that there's a much much bigger societal benefit that again sort of cultivating this expertise allowing folks like yourself to to do this kind of work so that hey you know there's this such obvious need and not only do you have the cap- the capacity to do it but you know you're you're being provided with the resources we're able to kind of shift resources around to to respond it's very very promising i mean given all of the kind of horrific things about, uh, about these fires. Um, just seeing that there are functional parts (laughs) that, that, that can come together.
0: Well, and that you, as you said, you are the part of the community, you know, you are, you are really part of it and contributing. And, and I think it's wonderful. We've kept you (laughs) a bit longer, but Chris, is there anything else you want to talk about or tell us or any new projects or things coming up, anything at all as we close?
2: I mean, so many new projects and so many things going on, (laughs) but no, I mean, I I don't think so. I think, I think it's good to close on that community. Um, Yeah. Note just because that's that's been sort of the biggest part of this is that for us for this program, um, but also for Maui in general, it's like you know I mean if there's any silver lining, enhanced the sense of aloha and connectivity to our neighbors, to yeah. our family, to you know people. Yeah, just it's kind of brought brought it to the forefront that we need to we need to help each other out.
1: one hundred percent. I'm
2: glad that we're we're able to do that. You know, I'm, I just feel lucky to be able to to be able to help. And I think you know a lot of people are doing the same.
1: Awesome,
0: Mahalo Nui for coming on our our show.
1: Yeah, faʻafetai lava. Thanks for yeah. coming. Yeah. Sure <laughs>